0: JOGCAST, with Jasmine chan Hyams, Gabby Perez, Ian Morrison, Naar McCallum, Josh Hayes, Joel Williams, Shruti Badol, and Luke Hart. The JOGCAST, March 2018 edition. Hello, and welcome to the JOGCAST. I'm Niall, and joining me in the studio today is
1: Josh and Joel, or JoJo as I like to call them. Um, for the record, we have never been called Jojo, except by Niall repeatedly in the ten minutes be- setting up to this. I'm quite upset.
2: We, we didn't agree to this.
1: <laughs> if anything, I might just leave now. Okay, in the show this time, <laughs> Luke Hart
0: interviews Professor Michael Shara about Novi, the American Museum of Natural History and Scuba Diving, and Ian Morrison and Jasmine Chan-Hyams and Gabby Perez take a look at what's happening in the March Night Sky. But first, before all that, here's Shruti Badol with this month's news.
3: In the news this month, the most distant supernova ever discovered, the discovery of some of the most massive black holes in the universe, and water content in the Trappist-1 planets. Astronomers have discovered the most distant supernova ever detected. A supernova is an explosion of a massive star that takes place at the end of its life cycle. The explosion in news took place around 10.5 billion years ago, when the Universe was only about a quarter of its present age. The supernova, named DES-16C2NM, was discovered by an international team of astronomers as part of the Dark Energy Survey that maps millions of galaxies to study dark energy, a mysterious quantity that is believed to cause an accelerated expansion of the Universe. DES-16C2NM belongs to a rare class of supernovae known as superluminous supernovae, also known as SLSN. Compared to normal supernovae, SLSNs are brighter at their peaks by factors of tens to hundreds and were discovered only 10 years ago. The study of the most distant supernova was published in February 2018 in the Astrophysical Journal. The supernova was first detected in August 2016 and its distance and brightness confirmed in October 2017 using the Very Large Telescope in Chile, the Magellan Telescope in Chile and the Keck Observatory in Hawaii. In a statement, the lead author of the paper, Dr. Matthew Smith from the University of Southampton said, It's thrilling to be a part of the survey that has discovered the oldest known supernova. DES-16C2NM is extremely distant, extremely bright and extremely rare, not the sort of thing you stumble across every day as an astronomer. As well as being a very exciting discovery in its own right, the extreme distance of DES-16C2NM gives us a unique insight into the nature of SLSN. The ultraviolet light from SLSN informs us of the amount of metal produced in the explosion and the temperature of the explosion itself, both of which are key to understanding what causes and drives these cosmic explosions. Currently, astronomers use a class of supernovae known as Type Ia supernovae as standard candles. Standard candles are astrophysical objects with known and fixed luminosity. And are used to determine astronomical distances. The exact intrinsic brightness of type 1a supernovae is known. The apparent brightness is a function of the distance, thus making them useful as standard candles. Since SLSNs can be a hundred times brighter than type 1a supernovae, they could potentially be used as standard candles. But not many SLSNs are known. And the key to use them as standard candles lies in finding as many of them as possible so as to standardize them by finding patterns between the light they emit and the brightness of each SLSN. The team of astronomers is hoping to find more supernovae events at even greater distances using the Dark Energy Survey. In another news... Astronomers from the University of Montreal and the Institute of Space Sciences in Spain have discovered what could be the most massive black holes ever found in the universe. The black holes were detected 3.5 billion light years away using NASA's Chandra X-ray telescope. The scientists studied 72 galaxies in the middle of some of the most massive and brightest galaxy clusters in the universe and determined the mass of the black holes by analysis of the radio waves and X-ray emission captured by Chandra. Around 40% of the black holes were found to be 10 billion times more massive than the Sun, a figure 10 times greater than the early predictions of the astronomers. The growth rate of many of these black holes was found to be faster than the stars in their host galaxies thus contradicting early research that suggested that these growth rates are similar. The reason behind the ultramassiveness of these black holes remains unexplained so far. And finally, a new study suggests that the planets in the TRAPPIST-1 system could contain 250 times more water compared to the Earth. Ever since its discovery over a year ago, the TRAPPIST-1 system has generated tremendous excitement in the astronomy community because of the similarities between its planets and the Earth. In the latest study, a team of researchers at the University of Bern used computational models to simulate the planetary orbits of TRAPPIST-1 to estimate the masses of the planets, from which the individual densities and compositions of the planets were then deduced. It was found that up to 5% of the planet's composition could be water. To put things in perspective, consider this. Only 0.02% of the Earth's surface is water. The study, published in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, provides new insight into the potential habitability of the Trappist-1 planets.
1: Thanks for that, Shruti. And now, Luke Hart interviews Professor Michael Shara about NOVE, the American Museum of Natural History, and scuba diving.
4: Hello, my name's Luke Hart, and joining me today is Professor Michael Shara from the American Museum of Natural History. Thank you for being with us today, Michael.
5: Hello, pleasure to be here.
4: (laughs) Okay, so I'd just like to take a quick second to ask you a few questions. And I wanted to know a lot about the American Museum of National History because it's awesome. I'd love to visit someday. Could you please just tell us a little bit about what goes on in the aspect of your job, curating the museum? What, What does that involve day to day?
5: Sure, the title is Curator of Astrophysics. I'm one of three curators of astrophysics. We are the equivalent of university professors Uh, In that we are responsible for the care, the maintenance of the collections in the museum. The museum has 35 million specimens, from insects to a million fish, a million birds, a million bats, and so on, and uh, hundreds of thousands of dinosaur bones. In the case of astrophysics, we don't have any stars or galaxies uh, (laughs) under uh, glass jars, but we do have, of course, as many petabytes of data. So our collections are in entirely digital and inside computers. The idea of the American Museum of Natural History is one, uh, of course, of great collections of much of the world's natural history on display, but it's also a research institution. Of the 1,200 people at the American Museum of Natural History, 200 have PhDs or are studying for PhDs. We have a graduate school. So we are really both a university and a museum and a great, of course, teaching center.
4: Fantastic. So with all that, what is it about the museum itself and the job that you do that you really enjoy? What What's the aspects that you enjoy?
5: Well, I would have to say all of it. The the functional duties that I have, uh, that is, if you will, the taxes in a sense that I pay... I'm not obligated to teach because we don't do graduate courses in astrophysics, though I do have graduate students from Columbia University who do okay. come and are resident with us and, in fact, have done their PhDs with me and with the other curators. So we do mentor graduate students and oversee their PhD research. But the functional work that I do is actually designing either space shows for our planetarium, a large 3D immersive experience, or designing extra exhibitions special exhibitions that appear for perhaps 6 or 8 months at the museum and then travel to other venues so in 2001 and 2 I was able to collect most of Einstein's papers the original wow. papers and I've held his field equations in my gloved hands and then in uh, 2011 12 uh, 13 there was an exhibition called Beyond Planet Earth which was envisioning where humans will go in the next 500 years how we will expand off the Earth, terraform Mars, expand into the rest of the solar system, start conducting mining in the asteroid belt, and then begin the tentative steps outside the solar system. So it's really a combination of exhibitions, space shows, management of our very large data collections, and of course a lot of engaging the public.
4: Wow. could you possibly tell us about maybe one of the exhibitions that you've you've held recently like what's what sort of thing's been going on?
5: The exhibitions that we have vary, the special mm-hmm. exhibitions vary. Uh, we happen to have one right now on mummies. Wow. Uh, there was a marvelous <laughs> expedition called Race for the Pole, which was the attempts to get to the uh, South Pole, uh, Scott versus Amundsen. One of our curators uh, did a marvelous job on that one. We've had multiple great dinosaur exhibitions. One of my favorites uh, was also about four or five years ago called Fighting Dinosaurs. It's the only find that's ever been made of two dinosaurs. They've got death grips on each other. They're not very large dinosaurs, but you could see them in combat and clearly they succeeded in killing each other (laughs) during the combat and then were buried in ash or lava or whatever it was that buried them and preserved them for the many millions of years. But we have exhibitions that are entirely cultural. There was a beautiful exhibition on Cuba. The United States, of course, has been utterly disengaged and in fact had sanctions on Cuba for much of the last 40 years. So we were the first museum that was able to go there, engage with uh, people in the street as well as uh, in the government, but mostly in science. And we held large collecting expeditions there. So our expeditions really, span all of biology, both invertebrate and vertebrate biology, as well as astrophysics, earth sciences, anthropology, really almost every area of human interest.
4: Fantastic. I love dinosaurs, but I feel like I owe it to the listeners to maybe get back on the topic of astrophysics, as it were. (laughs) So we're very privileged today to have you talking at the JBCA colloquium about nova and supernovae. Could you possibly, for our listeners... Mm -hmm give a bite size into novae and supernovae and sort of the differences and the features that they exhibit
5: sure novae are all recurrent phenomena mm. every classical nova or now called classical nova that we see going off in the sky will erupt many tens of thousands of times over the course of its history as a nova and that may be a billion years in length so we expect that most novae will erupt every 10,000 or 100,000 years. What is a nova? Well, in every case it's a binary star. Okay. It's a star like our own sun, a hydrogen fusing star, which is locked in a very tight embrace with a much smaller star called a white dwarf, a stellar corpse. This is an object about the mass of the sun, but about the size of the earth, so it's perhaps half a million grams per cubic centimeter and The white dwarf can be thought of as a kind of cannibal or a kind of vampire sucking hydrogen off of its hydrogen-rich companion onto its surface. When that Earth-sized object, that Earth-sized white dwarf accumulates about a hundred thousandth or a ten thousandth of its own mass, roughly an Earth mass of hydrogen on its surface, which is only about one kilometer thick, that hydrogen is going to combust, not in the chemical sense, but in the nuclear sense. So the hydrogen will start reacting in nuclear reactions with itself, generate a thermonuclear runaway, be blown off the surface, and brighten a million-fold. That's what we call a classical nova. Wow. The question has been for some time now, where do a very special kind of supernovas called Type Ia supernovas come from, and for a while it was thought that they might be, the origin or the progenitors might be classical novae. That is, if you were able to assemble material quickly enough on the surface of the white dwarf, you could crush it under that, the weight of the newly accreted mass and perhaps get the white dwarf beyond a certain almost magical mass called the Chandrasekhar mass, 1.4 times the mass of the sun wherein the internal pressure of the white dwarf is not sufficient to prevent it from collapsing all the way down to perhaps a neutron star and making this special kind of supernova which has been used as a standard or standardizable candle in astrophysics and in fact led to the discovery of the dark energy a few Mm -hmm. years ago or, or perhaps 15 years ago now. The idea that classical novae give rise to type 1a supernovas has largely been shown to be incorrect, say the last 10 or 15 years, except for one special case of NOVA, where if instead of a ordinary hydrogen burning star like the sun, if you replace that with a red giant star, which is able to transfer matter much faster onto the white dwarf, then the hydrogen can burn very, very quickly and non-explosively and can, in fact, grow the mass of the white dwarf towards that 1.4 solar mass limit. This is a special case. We're still not certain if this can be a significant fraction of all type 1a supernovae, but there's at least one and now probably two good cases of observations of distant type 1a supernovae where we do see a lot of hydrogen present. Which indicates the presence of probably a red giant star. But this is still a distinct minority of all yeah. such cases.
4: How often do you see events such as the type one A supernovae? So how how rare are they?
5: Type one A supernovae are about a quarter of all supernovae mm-hmm. in the universe. You do see them both in spiral galaxies and in elliptical galaxies that is in relatively young kinds of stellar populations, stars that were only born a few tens or hundreds of millions of years ago. But you also see them in elliptical galaxies, where there are no stars born more recently than, say, eight or 10 billion years ago. And so it's clear that these are star systems that can emerge very quickly, or that can also take many billions of years to form, or can hang on there as something else before they do manage to undergo this kind of collapse. The second kind of model that has been very popular and makes a lot of sense is merging white dwarf stars. Mm -hmm. If you have a pair of white dwarf stars that orbit each other, they will very gradually lose energy and angular momentum through the emission of gravitational waves, Mm -hmm. gravitational radiation. We have just observed and just seen the announcement of merging neutron stars. And merging white dwarfs must be at least a thousand times more common. Mm. There must be many, many, many more um, white dwarfs than there are neutron stars. And the formation of white dwarfs is also much less violent than the formation of neutron stars. So more of them will hold together. And so we think that these kinds of systems probably make the majority if not the vast majority, of type 1a supernovae. There's one escape hatch for that statement. It might be incorrect in certain special stellar populations. In spiral galaxies, we still don't really know. In elliptical galaxies, because of this preponderance of evidence that's been accumulating, including some of the things I'll talk about today in my own colloquium, we're pretty sure that the vast majority of such systems must be very old populations which are almost certainly only these or or the vast majority of these merging white
4: dwarfs wow okay while we're talking about novae and supernovae i did some reading and i found quite recently actually in august I believe that you led a study that found a nova that was predicted by, was it Koreans, 600 years ago? Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
5: Sure. Well, in 1437, Mm -hmm. and to be more exact, on the 11th of March (laughs) in 1437, Korean imperial, I'm going to say astrologers, they weren't really astronomers, though they did observe the sky every night, so in some sense they were observational astronomers, did note The appearance of a new star or a guest star in their asterism, an asterism they called Way, which we refer to today as the Tale of Scorpius. And it's important to note that they did these observations from very close to what is today the large city of Seoul Mm. in uh, South Korea. Seoul is um, at around 40 something degrees north latitude, whereas the tail of Wei the Scorpius is at minus 40 degrees declination. So this object was only a few degrees above the horizon. It would have been seen in March. The object could really not have been seen until almost twilight, only the last hour of the night. And in March, in Seoul, it's pretty darn cold. So these Mm. half-frozen astronomers noted the rising of a new star, something they had never seen before. It must have been pretty bright to catch Mm. their attention. They noted also that this star was seen for 14 days and then vanished and was never seen again. And that's too quick for a supernova. Mm. So the only thing it could have been, really, is a classical nova erupting. This was pointed out by Richard Stephenson at uh, Durham many years ago, as well as other great historians of astronomy. And both I and Mike Bode, a colleague here in the UK, have been hunting for the remnants of this nova for much of the last 20 years. On and off, we haven't devoted our entire careers to it, but it's been one of those things that's been a thorn in our side, in our sides, because we have made predictions about what old novae should look like. If we clearly think that we understand what novae are like, then we should be able to say what this 580-year-old object should look like. And I, with some other colleagues, predicted way back in 1986 that an old nova, which for the first 10 or 20 or 30 or even 50 years after its eruption, looks like a very high mass transferring, very bright system, which is quite stable in its brightness, should after a few hundred years transition and become a much fainter object, which we call a dwarf nova, something which has hiccups in its brightness, which can Mm. brighten ten or even a hundredfold for a few days as the accreting disk of matter around the white dwarf star collapses periodically onto the white dwarf. Hunting for it on and off, on and off, on and off, turned up nothing, because it turns out we were looking between the wrong two stars in the tale of Scorpius. The Korean record said that the new star was between the second and third star, and we searched assiduously long and hard, found nothing there. About 18 months ago, I decided, well, there's so many new catalogs in astronomy, so much online data, why don't I just expand the search twofold? As soon as I did, literally within 30 minutes, I found the Nova. And the way I found it was by realizing that within these catalogs, there was both a newly found cataclysmic variable star and there was an old planetary nebula or believed to be planetary Mm. nebula between the next two stars over and there was a coincidence between them. Now, Mm. the people who'd found the cataclysmic variable had not realized it was sitting inside a planetary nebula. The people who'd found the planetary nebula had not found the cataclysmic Mm. variable. No one had put these two together. And when I went and looked at my own photographic plates, from 30 years ago when I'd started the search, there was the planetary nebula, there was the cataclysmic variable. It was staring me right in the face, and I had seen it, and I'd even noted it in my notes from 30 years ago, but ignored it because it was between the wrong Mm -hmm. two stars. It was in the wrong place, but it wasn't. Now, I was then able to go back and reconstruct why these two stars, the second and third star in Way, might not be the second and third star they might only be the first and second it depends on an interpretation of where the first star is and the first star is defined by the easternmost star of the constellation and that actually changed back oh around a thousand a.d because of the precession of the earth the the earth wobbles on a twenty-four year time scale and that wobble changes the positions of stars very very slightly Hmm. So if I use that interpretation, the location of the cataclysmic variable in the planetary nebula matched. How though could I prove that the two really were connected and this really was connected to the Nova 1437? That is where a bit of detective work and some luck came in. The cataclysmic variable that was known was off-center. It -hmm. was not in the center of the planetary nebula. In fact, it was way off-center. And that made very little sense. Nova explosions should be in some sense relatively symmetric. They might be more elongated in one direction than the other. But the central star in all Nova shells that we know of, up to about 100 years old, are pretty much at the center. This one, 600 years later, was really off-center, way Mm -hmm. off-center. And the answer I realized was that the Nova, since it was so bright, had to be close. It had to be close, and if it was close, it could have a large proper motion, a large motion across the sky. That proper motion could then carry it away from where the explosion happened quite a bit in the course of 600 years. But the stuff blown off, the ejecta from the explosion, would in fact be slowed down very quickly by the interstellar medium, by the gas in the Mm -hmm. Milky Way. By analogy, imagine that you're zipping down the highway in your convertible, and you have a bag full of confetti. You take some of the confetti and you throw it out of the car. Well, what will the confetti do? It will run into the surrounding air, and it will rapidly stop and fall to the ground, whereas your convertible will keep zipping down the highway. If that was true, if the analogy is right, then the cataclysmic variable could well have moved away from the center. And the only way to check that is to look for instances or photographs of that cataclysmic variable as long ago in the past as possible to measure its motion across the sky. I was fortunate that there was a digitized photographic plate from 1923, wow. which showed the same cataclysmic variable and some nearby reference stars, which happened to be much further away and hence not appearing to move. And when I lined up those two images and measured very precisely and Actually, one of my colleagues did this very, very exacting work. Two of them did it independently of each other and came up with the same answer. We found that, indeed, the cataclysmic variable star was moving. More important, it was moving, let's say, straight downwards, but the center of the shell was straight upwards. Mm. So we could extrapolate backwards in time, back to 1437, and when we did so, we found that the cataclysmic variable was precisely at the center of the shell, allowing for the tiny bit of motion of the shell in that time. And that matching up is a kind of clock. Mm. It's actually a proper motion clock. Of course, we can't do carbon-14 dating on this. We don't see an arrow leading from the star back to where it came from. But in fact, we do. We do see a kind of arrow, which is the star's motion. And it's that proper motion clock that allowed us to really nail where the star was. And the lovely thing about it is that the star is now a dwarf nova. It has become much fainter. Its mass transfer rate has decreased enough to allow dwarf nova instabilities to occur in the disk of matter accreting around the white dwarf. And this is something that is supportive of the idea that old novae do not stay bright old novae forever but their mass transfer rate decreases on a few centuries' timescale. And in fact, they become dwarf novae for most of the time between nova eruptions. So they're rather like butterflies and caterpillars. They're the same objects, but they are in different states of development. Mm-hmm.
4: Fantastic. And that, that sounds like a years of work finally coming almost to fruition. Uh, it,
5: in many ways, it's more than two <laughs> decades of... Wondering, You know, we mm-hmm. didn't work on this without cease. In fact, we would try for a few weeks or months. Both of us would plow away at it, and we'd go to the telescope and look at various candidates and go home and, didn't work this time, but maybe we'll be smarter next time. And we would try, and we would try. I guess about eight or nine years ago, both of us shelved the project and said, that's it. It's over. Mm-hmm. we wasted enough of our careers on this miserable thing. It's a blind alley we will not bark up this tree anymore. And we went on to do many other things, really until about 18 months ago when I had this sudden moment of thinking, well, I really should try one more time because there are these powerful tools and I'm only going to do it once for one day. If I can't find it mm-hmm. in a day, I'm just going to take the whole file and chuck it in the garbage and never look at it again. Yeah, it was that and, one that's day. And I found. it. right.
4: Wow. Amazing. That's brilliant. Another one of your sort of research areas which I've read about is that you're quite interested by low luminosity, what we would call faint stars, Mm -hmm. okay? Very, very briefly, could you explain to the listeners sort of what those faint stars are and why we should be so interested in that?
5: Well, the idea enshrined in that or, or at the center of that is that not only do these objects become dwarf novae, at some point, but they might go into an even deeper state, not of what we initially called hibernation, but of kind of suspended animation, wherein the mass transfer from the hydrogen-rich star to the white dwarf star actually stops Mm. or becomes so very low that it's undetectable. This remains, I think, the holy grail for us. If we are ever to completely understand the very long-term evolution of the whole class of stars that we call cataclysmic variables we don't yet have an ironclad case and i would say that when the idea was first proposed that old novae that nova become old novae which become dwarf novae was proposed there was perhaps the kindest thing i can say is great skepticism there were never catcalls at hmm. public meetings on the subject but great skepticism Today, I would say that that skepticism has largely gone away. The idea that there is a kind of cyclic behavior, that you go from high mass transfer to lower mass transfer states and back, is something that I would say much of the astronomical community accepts, though there are a few holdouts. Perhaps this NOVA 1437 paper has helped to push them in the right direction. But the idea that there are non-mass transferring systems remains highly controversial. I have a few candidates that I am looking at. Mm -hmm. I'd rather not tip my hand in public (laughs) as to who they are, so I won't give you their coordinates, but I will continue to look at them with a few other colleagues. And I would hope that over the next 5 or 10 or 15 years, we can unearth at least one or two good ones also and demonstrate that, yes, there is now no mass transfer between the white and red dwarfs, but there is an old Nova shell, and perhaps via proper motions we can use that information or some other tricks we have up our sleeves to age-date them with near certainty. And that, I think, would really square the circle. That would be the final step in demonstrating that this idea of great mass transfer rate variations is correct. But even if not, even if it turns out that we don't locate any, and even if the idea of suspended animation ultimately is incorrect, I would say it's given a lot of impetus, both to theorists and observers, to go hunt for these things. And at least we've made the case that there is a partial decrease or a significant decrease in mass transfer. And that helps us to understand the long-term evolution of these otherwise enigmatic binary stars.
4: Fantastic. I don't think I've heard very much about low-luminosity stars, so that was a very interesting summary of this very active research topic, as it were. Well, I think I've almost run out of questions. Mm -hmm. The one thing I'd like to ask you very briefly is, obviously, with all this work and the tending to the American Museum of Natural History, I suspect that you are in desperate need of downtime at some point. And I read that at one point, you very much enjoy scuba diving. So is it scuba diving off the, in the Pacific, right?
5: It is. I love sharks. Yeah. I think <laughs> that they are magnificent creatures, extraordinarily dynamic and designed, or rather evolved to be both excellent hunters, but of course scavengers too. Mm. They are critical of being at the top of the food chain for helping to keep the oceans clean. And I love to scuba dive with them. I've scuba dived with all species of sharks, including once great whites, but I'm happy to say inside a cage when that happened. But essentially with all other species and the very best place to see lots and lots of sharks on every dive uh, typically is the South Pacific. I'm also a warm water diver. I don't like dry suits. I don't like diving Mm. in frigid conditions. The two or three best places I've ever dived are uh, Rangaroa and Fakarava, uh, north and uh, east of Tahiti. Magnificent uh, passes where you dive from the open ocean and the currents sweep you through beautiful canyons uh, into lagoons. And also the island nation of Palau, uh, which has a magnificent place called the Blue Corner. If there are any divers out there, Mm -hmm. they know as well as I do that that is one of the most glorious spots uh, on earth. You dive along the reef and then you take a hook, a reef hook, latch yourself into the rocks at the bottom and a four or five or even six knot current can sweep by you. It feels like being in a hurricane and you're held in place by the hook and you just watch the sharks feeding in front of you. So, yes, that's what I love to do more (laughs) than anything else with my downtime. It's
4: amazing. And I guess if there are any divers out there who didn't know about that, they do now. So they can go and check that out.
5: I hardly recommend uh, Rangaroa, Fakarava, Palau. Oh, yes. And the Cocos Islands. Utterly, utterly magnificent. Brilliant.
4: So one last word from you, please, Professor. Sharks or (laughs) supernovae? Both. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you ever so much, Professor Michael. Yeah. Thank you very much. Cheers. My pleasure. Thanks
2: for that,
0: Luke. And now we come to my favourite part of the show, where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else—the odds and ends. So I think we're going to start with Josh, who's got something on random walking cars or something.
1: Yeah. It? So um, <laughs> unlike, uh, so I've, I've got here a um, a paper uh, whose title is "The Random Walk of Cars and Their Collision Probabilities with Planets." Um, See, I
0: always thought cars rolled, but...
1: Yeah, no, so they've developed some that are similar to, you know, the luggage in Terry Pratchett, just with little... Oh, I see, just little feet. Yeah, Yeah, little feet everywhere. So this actual um, 6th of February, um, myself and quite a few of our listeners, I imagine, uh, were watching SpaceX successfully launch their Falcon Heavy rocket. And that, when it was in space, unveiled that it was, after all, carrying a Tesla Roadster in the top of it, um, complete with a mannequin called Starman, I think which is now just floating about up there. And because um, some people at the University of Toronto have come up with probably my favourite paper for quite a while, uh, where they've basically tried to work out what's going to happen to this car. So what they've done is they've uh, set up a load of um, simulations uh, and set the car running and um, seen where it's ended up (laughs) and whether or not it hits us. And does it? Uh, spoilers. <laughs> 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 Their simulations cover um, up to three and a half million years into the future, which is quite a long time in terms of people time, but not very long at all in terms of solar system time or universal time. So the Earth is f- about four billion years old. So basically they um, they they look at what happens in the short and long term uh, timescales. And um, pretty much so... Tesla's the the Tesla car is going to drift off, float about a bit, kind of uh, on a on a heliocentric orbit, going around the sun, um, about the same distance from the sun, the Earth as the sun is. Um, and in uh, 2091, uh, it's going to have a particularly close encounter with Earth. Not collide though. Um, so they've. They did about a 1,000 simulations of this. Um, Sorry, no, they've done about 300 simulations of this. Um, So that's like 83 years from now. Yes. We could still be alive, just about. Yeah, just about, (laughs) to see a car swing past. Certainly Uh, young people (laughs) might be. Yeah, young people We might be pushing it. We might be immortal by then, you know. We might all all be robots. Yeah, that's true. Um, But they... (laughs) Yeah, so they've um, looked at it, and they're basically just... um, At that point, it just becomes chaotic. So there's... um, pretty much chaos theory comes in. So a tiny perturbation, a tiny change in initial conditions lead to a really different outcome. Uh, so, Like butterfly effect. Yeah, the butterfly effect. <laughs> um, and so they kind of then look further ahead in time, uh, up to about three and a half million years, uh, and work out the probability of um, the car colliding with any of the terrestrial planets or the sun. Um, and they find that basically... Uh, Mars and Mercury are safe; uh, they've got nothing to worry about. Venus has about a two percent chance of a collision. Okay. Um, in the next, uh, well, uh, one and a half million years, and then it kind of just flatlines.
0: Is that relatively high in comparison to the other planets? Or
1: um, so in comparison <laughs> to the other planets that aren't Earth? Yes, because the other ones are completely safe as far as the simulation is Right. Are concerned. Okay. Whereas um, by after about three million years, uh, there is a ten percent chance that uh, the car will hit Earth. Okay, that's um, getting like better odds there. I'd take that bet. Yeah, so. um, however, <laughs> you can compare that, though, to um, if you... Uh, there, so there are um, studies of lunar ejector. So if you um, if you hit the moon with a big rock, some smaller bits of rock fly off. Um, and these, these are lunar ejector. Um, and there is about a 50% chance that those will hit Earth. Okay. Um, so we're more likely to be hit by bits of moon rock than a flying car. But... Um, I sp- Maybe um, if we send more flying cars may- up, yeah. it'll bump the odds <laughs> up, though. So. Yeah, I never thought I'd actually have to have this discussion. <laughs> what? <are> the, <laughs> the, apparently, the odds of being hit by a rock are less, are greater than being hit by a flying car, but the odds of that is not nil. Right. Okay. I did. Yep, that's fair. Yeah, um.
2: <laughs> a fly, flying space car. I think. it's like Does,
1: chitty chitty bang bang style. Though. Yes. <laughs> do,
2: do they take into account whether the car decays some in under sort of? Harsh space radiation. Um, No, Uh, because that would. I mean, surely the mass
1: changes, right? Yeah. So, like in in reality, like the mass would change. It's probably going to get hit by lots of little things, and like more (laughs) bits. Oops, I'm just dropping my water. Um, More bits of the car are going to fly off, and at which point, once I suppose once you've got loads of little bits of car. You've got more stuff to try and hit the yes. earth with, right?
0: Does it like? I'm assuming it will pick up other bits of debris as it goes. Mm. Maybe, yeah, or?
1: probably. I mean, there's also it's also just going to be completely bombarded by um, like cosmic rays and things, mm-hmm. um, which are fun if yeah. you get hit by. Fortunately, though, the person driving is a mannequin.
0: Yes. Um, okay. First, and- it's kind of our first step into towards Uber for aliens, isn't it?
1: So, <laughs> it's one way of looking at it, I suppose. <laughs> What are the uh, what do you reckon the surge charges are to get to Venus from Venus? Uh, well, given the
0: fact that it's a solar powered car, probably not too bad. It's only time that they're spending, right? Yeah. They're not having to put fuel in.
2: Well, surge charges are when you've got more people trying to try to book, right? So <laughs> I suppose the booking. <laughs> how many, how many <laughs> people want to leave? I feel like Venus is one of those places that you get to and then go.
1: Actually, this was a mistake. It's a bit inhospitable, it, it's, right? It's,
0: yeah. <laughs> maybe we should start sending more cars up in that case. If he gets, maybe. Also, <laughs> well, like
1: for for me, the, the this was a really like cool thing to have been done. But uh, like, I, what what do people think? What what do you guys think about this in terms of like a, a space litter kind of thing? Like, because that so there there was um about four months ago there was a really big like pushback on a guy who launched what i can only describe as a disco ball uh, into orbit around the earth the point being that it was supposed to be the brightest object in the night sky Oh, this is that man made star yeah, thing the, I, I think, think we mentioned this I, possibly on jobcast briefly yeah i think we um. we may we may have discussed it before but the like i i'm i'm really interested as to why there's this sort of double standard almost hmm. of it's okay to launch something funny if you're the guy that owns SpaceX, yes, but it's not okay to launch something that is what was was intended, whether or not you think it is a good idea. It was intended well as it was, well. It was
0: intended as a sort of almost artsy sort of piece, yeah. right? I suppose the issue with that one was though is it didn't that go up and become one of the brighter things in the sky, which means it can cause issues with astronomy-related mm. measurements, whereas. A random car isn't quite so bright and directed, I suppose. Mm. Um, I mean, it's still—I suppose there is an issue in terms of like we can't just go throwing our
1: debris off into space like willy nilly. But um... no, but like like the 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 amount of debris that's up there already is Mm. insane. Like if you actually if you watch the video of the car, you can see all sorts of glinting things in the background, right? And that is just bit like bits of metal, bits of paint. Just rotating and um, just breaking. That's that's just bits of metal and bits of paint rotating, reflecting the sunlight back at the camera.
2: Yes. Um, On a sort of uh, reflective note about the car and space debris, I guess. So I guess we sort of, as as an astronomy community, we sort of are biased more towards liking things that people like Elon Musk decide to do, because he his you know his goal is to eventually. Put people on Mars, right? Mm-hmm. And companies like his um, try and put people on Mars. It's no, quite it's, a difficult yeah. one to,
0: because the, we are actually biased, so it's yeah. hard, it, it is hard to take a step back the, and think about that, right? The
2: the argument <laughs> I've heard in favour of uh, putting putting the car in space over the other thing is actually Elon Musk's Falcon Heavy rocket. Um, in a sense, tries to reduce space debris by trying to recover all of the different bits anyway. So it was okay to put so some. It was up okay because... to put some up because ultimately a test for a way to put less up. <laughs> I guess that's it's an like interesting a... argument.
0: <laughs> okay, so launching into the uh next odd end, which is uh, kind of in the same vein, actually. Um it's uh, so another startup company, uh, known as Spin Launch, is uh, hoping to do a similar thing in terms of uh Dropping down the amount of debris that we have up there, um, as we've heard from Joel briefly there, uh, off of what Josh was saying, um, SpaceX is basically doing this thing where they bring the rocket boosters back down so they can reuse them. Well, there's another company, Spin Launch, um, that I just mentioned, which are hoping to be able to catapult their uh, payloads up into space. So,
2: discuss. <laughs>
5: I'm sorry, what?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a mini clip game several years ago. <laughs> <laughs> called called hedgehogs or space program or something like that, where your aim was to launch hedgehogs into space using a catapult, and then you got various upgrades that made it slightly easier. And someone has clearly somewhere down the line played this game and gone, you know what? What if we actually tried to do this?
0: So did was one of the upgrades getting to the point where they build a centrifuge inside of a vacuum?
1: No. Okay. That's what they're doing. Yeah. So, so, right, right. No, no, no. Can, we, can we have slightly more information on. Because I, I assume this isn't like a. It's a not medieval a
0: medieval, trebuchet no. Type yeah. thing, not, not like... quite. It's not quite that, no. So, basically, they're building a centrifuge inside. Well, they're going to build a centrifuge, place it inside a vacuum, and then spin it up to like insanely high speeds. And obviously, there's minimal friction with it being in a vacuum. Um, and essentially, they're hoping the momentum from the centrifuge can then be transferred into a catapult which can then send the payload, which is on the catapult, hurtling up, right? And it should get to a sort of speed... They, they reckon it'll get
1: to a speed of about 3,000 miles per hour, okay? <laughs> is, 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 is we reckon a phrase actually that's used in their uh, paper that you've got in front of you? <laughs> um, no,
0: it just says that... It will send it hurtling uh, uh... Uh, rather than reckon, but I'm, I'm just adding... I'm paraphrasing <laughs> to be a bit less uh, sure. Um... I, I have concerns. <laughs> so, but, but what what they think, right, is that they'll be able to launch it up to a similar height that the booster, the usual deck, like, both boosters that break off would get it up to, and then you'd have the main rocket like still there to be able to push it up the rest of the way into space. But that would like severely reduce debris and also reduce the more expensive part of the launch, which is actually the boosters, which Ooh. have the majority of the fuel um, and also like a lot of the the material that yeah. gets left. So that so like if it can work, it's actually a really good idea. But um,
2: I <laughs> also reduce a any sort of organic or person or or material to to a fine jelly <laughs> because because your initial impulse like you can transfer all that momentum from the centrifuge you can get that centrifuge up to speed really slowly. For example, you can have a low acceleration and get that up to a ridiculous speed. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to try to fairly instantaneously transfer that moment, well, you're going to have to pretty instantaneously transfer that momentum to whatever object you're launching up that, that's going to be a very, 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 very rapid acceleration. Yes,
0: that's true. Okay. Astronauts <laughs>
2: train for years to um not to jellify. not jellify <laughs> under so- under a fairly. Arguably l- much lower acceleration. I, I
0: think so. I think this is more in terms of trying to launch satellites up, okay. let's say, rather than people. I don't think we're just going to be like, yeah, you sit in there
2: I think and be, have at it. I guess we're like a, um, good, a heavy good satellite mm, or just pu- raw, raw materials yeah. to build other satellites. So they have
0: me. actually mentioned this briefly um, and they've, they've basically said, like, with such an aggressive toss, is how they've worded it, <laughs> <laughs> um, could the electronics and any other fragile cargo withstand? like the you know the the momentum changes is like you know the 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 force that's being hit on them um and they reckon that they have some sort of like the core technology they're developing
1: should be able to sort of mitigate these issues knowing um Rockets and rocket history. This may well involve chickens. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word! Oh,
0: goodness me! This
1: is uh, chickens in 20g. It <laughs> yes.
0: uh, wouldn't be 20g. 20g would be would be a
2: sweet be respite nice. from this. The, I mean, you you wouldn't be able to launch a, a space telescope with this. The everything would be broken. Uh, everything. Your mirrors. I'd, I I'm just. I, what I want to know is how they
1: plan on transferring the momentum from a small centrifuge. Like, so, so how how big's the centrifuge? Like, are, the, are they, and how are they transferring that momentum so quickly without not only not breaking the rocket, but not breaking the thing that's transferring the momentum.
0: So they've kind of skipped over those details. Unfortunately, I, I, I maybe... feel
1: I feel like this hasn't quite been mm. thought out.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if maybe this is all a bit hush hush at the minute though because they wouldn't want to.
1: Oh, so what? Actually, so sorry. Joel has just been miming to me that I think that he thinks that they're going to actually strap the rocket to the centrifuge and then just at the right time l- let, let go.
0: go. <laughs> I mean, no, you never know. I mean,
1: I mean to be fair, people do. That's how you throw the hammer, right?
0: Yeah. I mean it's true.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair, you spin around and
2: round and round and <laughs> let go eventually it's like that, that way do you, it for years <laughs> that way you can avoid some semblance of jellification, right mm. because How you, are you sp- have oh, you that's seen true, the, the, the change the change in momentum wouldn't be like cuz it, it would grad it would
0: gradually build up yeah yeah, but you've got true. less of it because um, it
2: does. rockets have to be so long because they have to hold tons of fuel for the booster stage. Yeah, so but, you're like, see, no, but you're. you can make just, it shorter. You're still like <laughs> rotating something the size of a fairly long room. Yeah, maybe it would have to be like a London Eye-sized centrifuge or something. Yeah, like, maybe it is. Maybe it is. But well, they, I, that's I said. Oh, they've not mentioned the size. Well, because
1: so. well, like, like you know, when you're at the fairground,ed you've got those ones where you stick to the wall, mm. and they they start flat, and then they kind of just rotate yeah. round. Yeah, so yes. It might well be something like that. The Wall of Death, I think they're called. Yeah, the Wall of Death. That's the one. But then you'd need like a really deep hole in the ground so that your rocket didn't just end up nosediving straight down. Beg- and then if it went wrong, you'd just end up firing it across a country and start a war. I feel like this is really not a good I mean, you idea. You wouldn't necessarily
0: need a massive hole in the ground. You could just have a big, two, two big tall towers and then an axle. Like right. a like a Ferris wheel, yeah.
2: <laughs>
3: like, it, it, it makes like a, like a, wheel. a, a
0: gigantic so, vacuum filled So we reckon that we've got this <laughs> down to we're going to be launching rockets Up into space using f- like a
2: souped-up Ferris wheel. In my uh, head, <laughs> in my head, the vacuum chamber is like a bell jar chamber mm. as well. Um, it, it does that's the other interesting point. How are they going to keep it
0: all? In in the vacuum, and then also be able to throw it out if it, you, if it's on the.
2: You s- you have
1: a little trap door in the top of the. You just, open it the right yeah, you just open it at the right time. open at the right time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, what, man. what what could go wrong? Oh, <laughs> uh, the
2: ca- those, <laughs> chicken, those <laughs> the chickens are in for a the, rough uh, wide of- ride. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I do. So how, how have, have you, they tried? Yeah, you actually. Yeah, you couldn't. You couldn't, couldn't open do that. Doors. No. Have of tried How Have, have you tried to? Have they tried to? Sorry, have you? Have they tried to? <laughs> have they tried to, have they tried to build, build it? it?
0: Uh, I, I think it's just in the planning stages at the moment. So, um, Thank goodness. <laughs> However, the company was founded in 2014, so I mean, they've like... had four years of planning now. So maybe they're getting close. They've probably had four years of
1: people sat around <laughs> tables like us going, "Why did Why we did agree we do to this?" this? I mean, like we we might be mocking them at actually, they might have come up with a really ingenious solution. So, well, maybe that's the thing. Yeah, maybe. Like, we'll in fact be, they we'll they be, do mention that the
0: acceleration of the vehicle is is supposed to be gradual, so I'm guessing it is in some way like it, it must it's already strapped in some way. Um, but they don't mention how it's strapped and how it's let go. It's, it's all it's kind of. It is skimmed over here. Definitely cable ties. So, I mean, yeah, and then they—you uh, could duct tape. you could put get cable ties of
2: the strength that they'll break at the right time. You see that? That would work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just for view, just for the listeners. I'm shaking my head right now. Joel is lying.
0: <laughs> um, so that that kind of sums up that. <laughs> so on to uh, Joel's um odd and end, which I believe is also to do with some flying tech
2: hitting earth. Um, so I think this constitutes as more odd and less end. Um, <laughs> so the article says, on the 9th of February, David Clark, a journalist and a lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University, examined some metal shards from the London Science Museum's archive, and discovered that they were from eighteen-inch, an 18-inch 18 metal saucer that had been discovered in 1957 as a sort of UFO discovery. A- eighteen inch. It was an eighteen inch. So like also. a wok. Yeah. So 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 in 1957, this uh this eighteen inch wok sized <laughs> UFO was discovered in Silpho Moor near Scarborough. So they chopped this uh UFO up into bits and uh, sent it off for an ex- uh, for examination, and um, the reason it had got can what, I just clarify yeah, something?
0: Where did they find it? In Silpho Moor, near Scarborough. Did they see it flying? No, so they found... So it's not a UFO. It's not a UFO. So, they, so <laughs> it's a ULO. Yeah. So it's a landed object.
2: <laughs> so, you so don't they, know it's landed. It, it might just have been on the ground. Let it, well, let <laughs> well, it, well, let the finish. <laughs> well, okay, so, so... So they found it on the ground. These three men from Scarborough found, found it on the ground and it had, uh, it had weird hieroglyphics on the bottom and they were very similar. To, it was very similar to the well the hieroglyphics weren't but the fact that it had hieroglyphics were similar to the saucer discovered on the ground in new mexico in roswell new mexico okay that's the very famous before. one right the very very famous mm-hmm. so so it was similar to that and the um, the silpho which is what they call it saucer 18 inch saucer bear in mind it's it's only 18 inches okay, across, okay also contained a small book that also had hieroglyphics on the front does it say what size the book is Presumably smaller than eighteen inches. <laughs> um, so M- this this book into the size. Well, here's here's the really weird bit, right? So so a cafe owner who who was also from sort of Scarborough claimed to decipher this this book. He claimed to be able to read it in this weird alien language. <laughs> So and, cafe uh, owners in uh, Scarborough, Scarborough are very clever then. Very I'm good sure. linguists, yes. I've heard. Uh, extraterrestrial. Um, so exolinguists. Is, is there, is there tea, tea cakes and exolinguistics? Mm. Well, it's, it would be Ackles Cakes, wouldn't That's it? Up in quite Yorkshire. a cool cafe yeah. name, actually. <laughs> Let's open one. <laughs> <laughs> the Jodcast, opening a cafe near you. <laughs> Um, moving so, moving on. So this uh, this cafe owner who uh, who claimed to be able to interpret it interpreted this book as uh, being written by an alien named Ulo, and being a <laughs> being a prediction about an atomic war. Apparently, in quotes, the the book said, "You will improve or disappear." I mean, that is. What my uh, PhD supervisor keeps saying to me. <laughs> um, it's, I thought that was just me. <laughs> no, you've been saying it to me as well. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm many bad. people say it to me. <laughs> so, so shortly after the discovery of this um, this book and this weird metal upside down wok, uh, which the pictures of looked like they'd strapped a really large spinning top and put a uh, one of those uh, dish lids that you put on top of uh, fancy silver tray food. <laughs> Are these Um,
0: pictures copyrighted, or will we we be able to put them on the website?
2: I mean, it's just from
0: the BBC website. So I
2: think they're probably out of copyright. It's 1957 Okay, so we'll put them on the Um, website for you to have a look at then. (laughs) We'll try to. Um, So this this saucer was cut up, and it's sent off to metallurgists to determine if, in fact, it was a flying saucer from outer space. And uh, metallurgists and other experts who looked at it, determined it had no special properties at all, (laughs) no weird electronics at all. And had apparently never been into outer space. What? No. Uh, in fact, it came from Earth. Did, <laughs> did they, they then cook oh. a stir fry in it? <laughs> I mean, it,
1: it's it's what sized? It's not wok-shaped.
2: Well, presumably, that's why it disappeared. <laughs> it's it, so it just went missing. So they sent off all the shards and then just never got them back. Oh, okay. And they so only discovered these bits of uh these bits on. Well, they were discovered on the 9th of February by David Clark, the journalist. So what year was this in? So this all disappeared. This all cracked off in nineteen fifty-seven. So sort of. All- Cold War, y kind Cold of Cold War, pre yeah, early Cold War.
0: So Ulo was talking about nuclear war when
2: nuclear war was high in the Definitely. news, and one wonders why Ulo was talking about nuclear war when it was on everyone's minds. <laughs> it's ironic, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I mean, I mean, he has a point. Like, if 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 you're all thinking you oh, bit a nuclear war, we should probably stop the nuclear war. Mm. That's that's when I'd write.
3: I mean, I arguably, stop, you could
1: have do that war. now as well. Oh, with, uh, yeah! Again, we're down the political Tim and uh,
0: Donald Trump
2: fronting off at each other. But, <laughs> but um, my is bigger than your butt. <laughs> but is Ulo walking among us today? That's like, a question. I, c- isn't I, can, it? I can reveal.
1: <laughs> joining us today
2: on the Jogcast is Ulo. Hello. <laughs>
1: I was, about... <laughs>
2: I was about to start humming the X Files theme tune, but I'm pretty sure that is still in copyright. <laughs> Make up your own. The J Files.
1: The JoJo Files. I will throw some water at you.
0: <laughs> Just watch the mics. <laughs> um, well, that's very interesting then. Yeah, but the, yeah, that is a fair point because if it were a spacecraft, then where is the thing that was piloting it? I suppose. I but mean, the, the were, the were tiny, they tiny,
2: tiny thing yeah. that was piloting? Were, this were they a this mannequin
0: space? called? Um... What was his name? Starman. 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 Were they a mannequin called Starman, or oh, yeah, that's David Bowie.
1: Yeah, oh, that's that's that had
0: completely gone over my okay, head before. Right. So
1: <laughs> I, I, I'm sat here witnessing. So David Bowie. Yeah, David. David, David is Bo- driving David a Tesla Bowie, yeah. in space. He wasn't married. He was put. He was. He was sent. He was
2: fired into space course. Cool. The... That's a really <laughs> the... cool way to, to have a funeral. <laughs> well, one of the uh, one of the promo videos they put out for the Falcon Heavy launch was uh was the just the video of the car flying and uh and the uh, tune uh, the ground control to Major Tom playing in the background as well. <laughs> it, was quite, it was quite good. It was one of the official SpaceX videos.
0: I believe we're also not allowed to sing that one here. No, we can't. We don't have
2: the copyright for yeah, that either. I also can't sing it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to sing it. I
1: refuse to murder a song.
0: So we've had cars driving in space, catapults throwing things into space, and then walks landing from uh, space. Flying saucers (laughs) not even being in space. Oh yes, that's true, that's true. So maybe if we put all of that together, we could catapult an 18-inch walk inside of a car piloted by David Bowie. Um, Maybe we could put a book in it and warn some other planet about some war that they're going to have.
2: Or some other. (laughs)
0: Cool. Well, that clarifies the odds (laughs) and ends. So now moving on, uh, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky.
6: The Night Sky for March 2018. Well, after dark, that lovely region of the sky surrounding Orion, its three stars pointing down to the left towards Sirius, in Canis Major, and up to the right to Taurus and the Hyades and the Pleiades cluster. These are now sinking towards the west. Still quite high, though, are Castor and Pollux in Gemini, the heavenly twins. Down to the left of the uppermost of the twins, their feet, is a rather nice open cluster, M35, which you can pick up with binoculars on a dark, clear night. Going higher up still towards the bright star, yellowish star Capella, there are some other open clusters in the constellation of Auriga, again moving over towards the west. Towards the south is a rather faint region, which contains the constellation of Cancer, the crab. But again with binoculars, there is a very nice open cluster, M44, the beehive cluster, or pricipae, and that's a worthwhile thing to look at and then we come over to leo the lion resting on its haunches i think like the lions in trafalgar square its brightest star is regulus at the lower right hand corner rising over towards the east is a bright star called arcturus at the bottom of the constellation of booties and over to its right getting towards overhead it's actually a very nice time of the year to observe the plough in the constellation of Ursa Major. Uh, There are two nice galaxies that you can see with uh, certainly a small telescope, M81 and M82, and they're up to the right of the plough. If you start at the lower left corner of the plough or the saucepan in the case of when it's called the Big Dipper, move up towards the top right star, which is Dubhe, and carry on by the same amount you'll actually reach where they're located. So still quite a nice lot of things to observe, just with your eyes and binoculars on a dark, clear night. Well, what about the planets? Well, for quite a while now, all of the planetary observations have been in the morning. But at least now, this month, we have two planets, Venus and Mercury, which we can actually see after dusk. We'll start with Jupiter. It's now rising just before midnight at the beginning of March, and in fact about an hour earlier by a month's end so you can stay up late to see it. Initially it has a 39 arc-second disk and it shrines at magnitude minus 2.2, but as the month progresses its apparent diameter increases to 42.5 arc-seconds and its brightness to magnitude minus 2.4. Jupiter will transit before dawn and so will enable the giant planet to be seen with the equatorial bands sometimes the great, but I should say reducing in size, red spot, and up to the four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Sadly, Jupiter lying in Libra during the month is heading towards the southern part of the ecliptic and will only have an elevation of about 20 degrees when crossing the meridian. Atmospheric dispersion will thus hinder our view, and it might be worth considering purchasing the ZWO atmospheric dispersion corrector which will counteract the atmosphere's effects. It costs somewhat over £100. Well Saturn is now rising around 3am at the start of the month and just after 2am at its end. With an angular size of 16.3 arc seconds it climbs higher before dawn and so becomes easier to spot as the month progresses. Its brightness increases from plus 0.6 to plus 0.5 magnitudes. The rings were at their widest towards the end of last year and are still at about 25 to 26 degrees to the line of sight, well open, and that's very nice. Saturn is now lying in Sagittarius, just three degrees above the topmost star of the teapot. Sadly, even when at opposition later in the year, it will only reach an elevation of just over 15 degrees above the horizon, when crossing the meridian. Again, an atmospheric dispersion corrector could be very useful. Mercury. Mercury gives us its best evening apparition this month when it reaches its peak height above the western horizon on the 15th. When, at greatest elongation, it lies some 18 degrees east of the sun. However, at this time, its magnitude has dropped from minus 1.3 at the beginning of March To minus minus 0.4 magnitudes. Its magnitudes continue to fall, dropping to plus 0.9 by the 20th, and soon after will be lost in the sun's glare. As described in the highlights, Mercury flirts with Venus during the month. Mars Well, Mars starts the month moving quickly eastwards in Ophiuchus, moving into Sagittarius on the 12th as it moves towards the planet Saturn It's a morning object rising at about 2 a.m. at the start of the month. It has a magnitude which increases during the month from plus 0.8 to plus 0.3 magnitudes, and an angular size of just 7 initially, increasing to about 8.5 arc seconds. It'll be pretty hard to spot details on its salmon pink surface, but maybe imaging with a little webcam doing what's called lucky imaging, one might start picking up some of the major features. It will only reach an elevation of 14 degrees before dawn at the start of the month and just 12 degrees by month's end venus is seen low in the west after sunset shining at magnitude minus 3.9 has an angular size of about 10.3 arc seconds venus rises a little higher in the sky as march progresses initially setting around one hour after the sun but increasing to an hour and a half by month's end. It has two near conjunctions with Mercury, as described in the highlights we're going to read now. So what are the highlights of the month? Well, nothing too exciting. But on March the 2nd to March the 4th after sunset, Venus and Mercury are within 1.3 degrees of each other. So given a clear sky and you need a low western horizon, you should be able to spot them. Their closest is on the 3rd, when they are just 1.1 degrees apart. Now, you might well need binoculars to penetrate the sky's residual brightness, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. On March the 10th, 11th, before dawn, we can see Saturn, Mars and a waning crescent moon, lying to the upper left of Mars on the 10th and the upper left of Saturn on the 11th. On March the 19th after sunset you can spot Venus, Mercury and if you're lucky a very thin crescent moon. Looking west after sunset on the 19th and given a very low western horizon one might be able to spot Venus near Mercury which is close to maximum elongation from the Sun. A very thin crescent moon just two days after new will be seen to the upper left. Again. Binoculars may well be needed, but please do not use them before the sun has set. And that's a pretty tough observing challenge, I think. In the evening of March 23rd, the Moon, coming towards first quarter, will lie within the Hyades cluster. After it's set from the UK, sadly, it will occult Aldebaran, which, as I'm sure you know, is a red giant star lying between our solar system and the cluster and finally a nice object on the moon's surface the Alpine Valley best seen on the nights of March the 8th and the 24th when the terminator is close so they're two good nights to observe an interesting feature on the moon if you have a small telescope close to the limb is the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium towards the upper end you can see the cleft across them, which is called the Alpine Valley. It is about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. The dark crater Plato is visible nearby. You may also see the shadow cast by the mountain Mont Piton, lying not far away in Mare Imbrium. This is a very interesting region of the Moon. I hope you get some enjoyable and clear nights during March.
2: Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our Antipodean listeners, we welcome Jasmine Chan-Hyams and Gabby Perez from Carter Observatory with the night sky where you are.
7: Hi, this is Jasmine and Gabriella coming to you from Wellington, Aotearoa, here to talk to you about the southern night skies in the month of March.
8: Hi there, Gabriella here from Wellington, New Zealand. I work at Space Place at the Carter Observatory as a telescope operator. Um, I've been staring at the southern skies for most of my life, and as a child I saw a fully mapped out globe, and I realised that there was not much more to explore or find here on Earth, so I became fascinated with space. And ever since, I've wanted to explore the universe and beyond. And now I bring the universe to me, mostly through collecting its light with either my eyes, a pair of binoculars, or a telescope.
7: And I'm Jasmine. I'm a PhD biotech student at Victoria University of Wellington. But who I am is a scientist, a stargazer, and a storyteller. We are wishing a fond farewell to Dr. Claire Bretherton, who has contributed so much to this podcast over the years. Thank you for teaching me about treasuring that moment of awe when you share a wonder of the universe with someone who has never seen anything like it before. You will be sorely missed at Space Place, and we wish you all the very best in your new job. Looking up into the night skies is one of the true delights of living in the Southern Hemisphere, especially here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where it is easy to get away from the bright city lights, and where we get a broader and brighter view of the Milky Way. Early in the month of March we can look forward to gazing upon many star-studded Greek heroes and mythical creatures. We can use these constellations as guideposts to find deep sky objects including beautiful nebulae and special features of our southern skies. Our journey begins with the Greek constellation Orion, who appears in the skies after full dark in the north-northwest for the month of March. For many of us, finding the three bright stars that form Orion's belt were probably the first thing you could proudly identify as a child. These three stars are second magnitude stars. You can also see with the naked eye Betelgeuse located in Orion's armpit, a red supergiant hundreds of times larger than our sun. Yet the brightest star of this constellation is Rigel, a blue star at Orion's ankle. Blue stars are the hottest kind of stars you'll find in the night skies, while red stars are cooling down, burning out the last of their heat energy and expanding. Just below his belt, you'll find the Orion Emission Nebula, M42, a huge star-forming cloud. More than two widths of our moon across, it lies about 1500 light-years away. With the naked eye, it appears as a diffuse, cloudy patch. But through a telescope, you can see the clouds of dust and gas, uh, lit up by the baby stars they are forming. From Orion's belt, it's just a star jump to the right and up to find Sirius, the brightest star in our skies. Sirius is seriously bright, at about 20 times brighter than our sun, and only 8.6 light-years away. Sirius is part of the Canis Major constellation, one of the two dog companions that accompany the hunter Orion. Below Canis Major, you can look for the two stars that form Canis Minor. The star Procyon, in Canis Minor, forms a triangle with the first magnitude stars Sirius and Betelgeuse. And this is what we call the Southern Triangle, and within the Southern Triangle you can look for Monoceros, the unicorn constellation, home to the gorgeous Rosette Nebula. This nebula has a beautiful carnation pink colouring, and can be seen with binoculars in the part of the constellation closest to Betelgeuse. Neighbouring Orion is the zodiac constellation Taurus, the bull. Taurus and his fiery red eye, the red giant Aldebaran, can be found low in our northwestern sky, after sunset, where we can easily make out the V shape of his horns. Near his shoulder lies the Pleiades star cluster. On a clear dark night you can see seven points of light with the naked eye, but it's best viewed with a pair of binoculars. The Pleiades is a young cluster of mostly hot blue stars, the big ones that burn up all their fuel quickly. They live fast and die young. These bright blue stars are said to be seven beautiful sisters, and you can find the seven sisters sheltering in the shoulder of the bull, hiding from Orion's rather amorous intentions. After you get an eyeful of these blue beauties, you can jump on down to the Crab Nebula, M1, but you'll want a telescope for this part. M1 was the first Messier object recorded by famous French astronomer Charles Messier in 1771. To find M1 with your telescope, look for Aldebaran first, then follow the bull's horn all the way to its end, and you'll find the Crab Nebula close to the horizon. Large apertures are needed to make out the filamentous detail. The Crab Nebula was first viewed more than a thousand years ago by ancient Chinese astronomers who recorded a bright light forming in this area of the skies. What they witnessed was a supernova, a dying star. At the heart of the Crab Nebula is the pulsar, the skeleton of the dying star. Although we cannot see the pulsar with an ordinary telescope, we can listen to the radio waves it emits as it spins. We can listen to the song of the supernova. Now you can enjoy looking for Orion, his hunting dogs, Taurus the bull, and the unicorn Monoceros throughout the early evenings of March. But for now, I'll hand over to Gabriella, who'll tell us all about what planets we can find this month and features of the skies to the south.
8: So in March, if you're looking for the planets, you'll need to stay up late. Venus sets shortly after the sun, but becomes increasingly visible in our twilight skies towards the end of the month. Jupiter rises in the late evening at about midnight in mid-March. This gas giant reflects the light of our sun and will outshine Sirius, becoming the brightest object in the night sky after the moon. For those early rises, Mars and Saturn are on the eastern horizon just before dawn. Around the 7th of March, the planets will align up quite nicely on either side of the waxing gibbous moon. And on the 21st of March, we can observe the autumn equinox, which will give us equal day and night. Now if you turn over to the southern horizon, we'll look for our iconic Southern Cross constellation crux. The crux will be low in our southeastern skies in early March after sunset. We can use the pointer stars, the reddy-orange Alpha Centauri, and the bluey-white Beta Centauri to identify the true Southern Cross. There's a lot of things in the sky that could make a cross shape. So as the night progresses, the Southern Cross will journey around the South Celestial Pole Centre as the Earth spins. Bringing with it um, the dark patches that stretch out across our beautiful view of the Milky Way. Um, these patches represent the giant moa, now an extinct large flightless bird native to New Zealand. Um, these dark patches obstruct the light from faraway stars from reaching us here on Earth and signify uh, massive interstellar objects called dark nebulas. And These dark nebulas can be seen quite easily in the backdrop of the Milky Way, as the large concentrations of starlight surrounding them helps us see them better. The head of the Moa sits by the Crux constellation, nearby the star Beta Crixus and um, the Jewelbox Cluster. This dark nebula is usually known as the Coal Sack Nebula, this densely packed molecular cloud. Now, much like coal itself, it could ignite one day as it becomes an active stellar nursery, shining up as one of the brightest sections in our night sky. Now, following the Moa's ascent, Scorpius also rises in the east. In Maori star lore, we know this as the legendary fish hook of Maui, Te Mata Maui. And then where the Milky Way bulges near to Scorpius in a zone we know as Sagittarius A, which is the galactic center. We have the brightest view of our own galaxy. And from the galactic center, we received all the intense radio feedback suggesting the supermassive black hole at the center of our Milky Way. Now, using the Southern Cross, we can find Canopus, the second brightest true star in our sky. It is part of the Carina constellation, the keel of the Argo Navis. Uh The ship used to dominate the night sky as the largest constellation. Um, In March, it's located just above the crux. In the center of this constellation is the Great Carina Nebula, which uh, houses the giant red dying star, Ada Carina. Ada Carina actually used to um, outshine Canopus for a brief while when it went through an event known as an imposter supernova. Um, This hardy star is now encased in the Homunculus Nebula and has faded, and we can only really see it through a telescope now. Uh, the globular cluster, 47 Tukane, will also be high in the sky and faintly spotted to the naked eye by the 10th brightest star in the night sky, the pancake star Achernar. I say pancake because it's spinning around so fast it's flattened itself out a little bit. Um, globular clusters are fascinating things. Their structures allow us to witness stellar interactions, but also it allows us to pinpoint the smallest and faintest stars. The large bright stars kind of push themselves to the core and the outer stars are um, fainter and they are unique in this beautifully ordered structure. And this is how uh, we first observe some of the white dwarfs. We can also look for two of our neighboring galaxies, the Magellanic Clouds. You can see them without the aid of a telescope or even a pair of binoculars, but you need to get away from the city lights and on a nice dark moonless night, they come up quite clearly. These are two small, irregular dwarf galaxies that orbit around our Milky Way. The gravitational pull of our Milky Way galaxy warps and distorts them, pulling away clouds of dust and gas and even stars to form the Magellanic Stream. The small Magellanic Cloud and large Magellanic Cloud are actually connected by a bridge of neutral helium, suggesting that they were once the same object. Now, the Magellanic Clouds, especially the small Magellanic Clouds, are some of the first away objects that we can just see, from here in our backyards in the southern hemisphere. So that's it from us for the month of March. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you in April. And we wish you all very
7: happy stargazing.
0: Thanks for that Jasmine and Gabby.
1: And now on to the feedback. Um so we we've uh, had one we've had an email from Teresa uh, who says uh hi Joecast team just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate the Jodcast. I've been sick in bed and haven't had the energy to do much else, but listen to the Jodcast, and all of that astrophysics and nerd conversation has been helping me feel better. Thanks. Colon close brackets. Which I believe, if you rotate, as a smiley face. Yeah, get well soon, Teresa. I hope you're all. Uh, I hope you're better uh, by the time this goes out. Yeah, uh, we. That's all the feedback we've had. So please send us more. Uh, we like receiving postcards, emails. <laughs> so, if you if you
0: want to get in touch, actually, so you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net
2: Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Jodcast Facebook at
1: facebook.com slash Jodcast.
2: YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Jodcast Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash Jodcast And don't forget, you can send us post. The address is on the website, but for those of you that
1: can't access the website, uh, it is the Jodcast, Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, Alan Turing Building, Oxford Road, Manchester, M139PL. Send us your postcards, that'll be fun. Um, if you're listening to us uh, on your favourite podcast uh, app, uh, did you know that you can find us on your favourite podcast app? Thanks for that, John. Okay, so that sums up this show. So thanks to Luke
0: Hart for the interview, Shruti Badol for the news, Ian Morrison for Nike Sky North, Jasmine Chanhiams, and Gabby Perez for Night Sky South. The editors were Naomi Asabre-Frimpong, Andrea Dogaro, Jake Morgan, and Tom Scragg. The producers were Emma Alexander and Jake Morgan. And I've missed the presenters out, so here's a shout-out from the guys again. We've got Joel, Josh, and then me, now. So, until next time, John!